0: You're listening to Figuring It Out, a show about life's toughest decisions and how we make them. I'm your host, Lindsay Strauss. On today's episode, we're talking about what trust and morality has to do with how we decide and how we can use that information to create extraordinary experiences in our life. This is for all the people who are asking, do you think this is a good decision Well, we're not really going to answer that, but our guest expert today, Dr. Paul Zak, shows why it may be helpful to look to the brain for guidance rather than relying on our instincts alone.
1: The decisions we make not only guide our own lives, but really identify the very interesting variation across human beings, right? Why do you like vanilla ice cream and I like chocolate. I and mean, it's a trivial decision, but it's kind of interesting, right? Like, yeah, why, why the heck do I like chocolate ice cream? That's kind of weird. And why sometimes do I order vanilla? So I know, Lindsay, that you have never made a bad decision in your life, but your uh, next door neighbor who was buying investment real estate in 2008 when everyone knew that the market was crashing, what's the deal with that? If we have such big brains, why do we make quote bad decisions? And so about 20 years ago, because people can't tell us why they make the decisions they make. If I just ask you, why'd you do this? Great. Right. We could do that, but it turns out that just asking you why you do something um, doesn't really give us much predictive insight. In other words, if I follow up and see if you do the same thing over and over and over, you don't. Um, so we started measuring brain activity to identify why people make the decisions they make. And this is a very humble endeavor, right? I don't want to impose... Some model of decision making from psychology, from economics. I just want to ask what, you know, why are you doing what you're doing neurologically? What is the source of that? And one of the dirty secrets in neuroscience is that if I run an experiment and I measure brain activity while people make a decision, let's say I measure 30 people, I might see four or five different patterns of behavior for people making in the brain, for people making the same decision. So this opens up a really interesting set of questions, which is if I give you the same information, if you are, you know, an adult, you have a brain that's not on drugs. Why do you? Why does your brain process that information when you're doing the same things as other people do? So now we really get to what I call neural diversity, which is fascinating.
0: Dr. Paul Zak is a scientist, entrepreneur, and author of several books, such as The Moral Molecule and Trust Factor. He's trained in economics and neuroscience, and is a pioneer in the field of neuroeconomics, which is basically a fancy term to say, he applies his research on the brain to the study of markets and business. He's also the founder of Immersion Neuroscience, the first neuroscience as a service platform. Don't worry, we'll get into what all of this means for you later in the show. Dr. Zach's newest book is called Immersion, the science of the extraordinary and source of happiness. Here's Dr. Zach now on why being a little different led him down a path of discovery that benefits us all now. You always hear how research is really research. What what brought you to this field?
1: Oh, I'm a Martian. (laughs) Um, I don't really understand the humans. And so when we started running experiments, particularly on social decisions, so I may have some social dysfunction, you can decide at the end of this uh, recording, Um, But when we start looking at social decisions, in particular, the models in economics uh, for what's called strategic behavior, so sort of game theoretic models, I'm trying to take into account what you're doing, you're taking into account what I'm doing. Those models suck. And um, they're mathematically beautiful and predict zero, just about zero. And, um, And so I had done work in the early 2000s on interpersonal trust. And we found that trust was among the strongest predictors researchers ever found to understand why some countries are rich and continue to be rich and why some some countries are poor. And so when you think about it, like almost everything you do is embedded with Mm -hmm. trust. Getting on an airplane, eating in a restaurant, driving your car, like, gosh, that's a big, big question. And so the work I had done originally was looking at the biological uh, and social conditions in which enable or, or inhibit trust. But I would always ask this question. Well, gosh, for a given environment, why do two people who don't know each other ever trust each other?
0: Right.
1: And that's a really deep question. And so, yeah, I spent about 20 years digging into that baby.
0: Yeah. And so on that, I mean, why is it that we we trust each other? I think when I, I think about the actions that I'm taking, I'm not consciously thinking, do I trust this person or not? So what's what's really happening behind the scenes here?
1: And that's the key is that if we have to think about this, it's like thinking about, you know, walking down the street and looking at your feet, you just couldn't do anything else, right? So we have evolved mechanisms, we and other mammals actually, that um, unconsciously identify whether someone appears to be trustworthy or not. And one of the key neurochemical signals that my lab discovered was a neurochemical called oxytocin. Um, And which really had never been studied because it's a a real slippery little character. It's hard to to capture. So we developed a protocol to measure the human brain's acute production of oxytocin. We also developed a protocol to shoot synthetic oxytocin into people's brains. And so we really learned a lot about what this signal does. And it seems to be a big part of our uh, human social nature that we're acutely sensitive unconsciously to those uh, signals that tell us where someone is safe or not safe, mm-hmm. uh, and and other animals have to do this too. What's interesting about humans is that we have many more receptors for uh, oxytocin than any other mammals, and uh, not only are we therefore anatomically really social creatures, we're very sensitive to social information. But doing things like uh, we do naturally, which is going into an office and hanging out with strangers, right. Chimpanzees, we share 98% of our genes with chimpanzees. Chimpanzees cannot do that, right? But we can because we have this very acute social sense and we like to be in groups like we dig it. So so part of the the neuroscience we did over the last 20 years shows that oxytocin facilitates um, what looks like a reward signal in the brain. So we we get value, social value from being around humans. And if you think about human beings, we very uh, poorly thrive without being around others and so once we kind of found these mechanisms then we started looking for factors that promote or inhibit oxytocin release to talk about um you know why uh, we see different variations why people trust con man for example or why what happens with psychopaths who take advantage of people so we can dig into all that if you like but um, basically m- oxytocin increases our empathy so if I, my brain makes oxytocin, I'm able to read your emotional signals more effectively. It's those emotional signals, unconscious, that um, identify uh, whether you're likely to be a good person to be around. Good meaning I can collaborate with you or you're safe. You're not going to murder me. Um, uh, maybe you fall in love with me or become friends or whatever. All those things are on the same, very similar pathways in the brain. And now we get to less of variations, right? So you probably have friends or maybe you are like super empathic. And they're really sensitive to social information. And then people like me who are Martians who don't really pick up those social cues as much. And so that's also interesting, right? And then it also gets us to moral behavior. Since you dropped that little bomb in the beginning, let's uh, follow it down to the ground. And so what we showed, uh, I guess, in my 2012 book and the research that preceded that was that one reason that we behave in socially appropriate ways, that's my definition of moral, is that this oxytocin driven empathy makes us feel bad if we hurt others. So if mm. you can imagine, um, I know you've never done this, but if you've been cranky to somebody, uh, never, some, someone never. you like, someone you work with, yeah. and then, you know, you go home, you go, man, I was a real jerk to Susan or Bob, whoever. And the next day you got to go in and go, or a family member who you love, and you got to go, you know, I was a real jerk cured yesterday i was having a bad day and i, I and I'm reflecting on that so that's one of the inhibitors of good social decisions which is stress so stress physiologically inhibits the release of oxytocin at least high enough levels of stress so that we become self-focused and not other focused and as social creatures the reason why we have a moral sense, if you will, is that we need the other humans to survive. Right. Right. By and large, there are some exceptions, but by and large. So I want to behave appropriately socially most of the time so I don't get shunned from the social groups that I'm a member of.
0: I want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier and then dive into this um you know shared moral contract if you will. But you talked before around the trust it's it's a lot about interpersonal trust. A lot of your early work was around seeing in a one-on-one situation or maybe even in a group situation mm-hmm. how does my implicit understanding of whether I should trust you impact how I how I act and how I make decisions? And I'm curious to dive into this more at that individual level versus institutional level as well. I think so much of the conversation that we've been seeing over the last few years with a changing media landscape, a changing political landscape, is this decrease in trust. And so what does you know science say about that?
1: The reason that we have built these institutions in time necessary to determine whether an action we're taking um, is going to be effective or not um or in our best interest um so if i um i just bought a, a used car for my daughter who's going to college if that car ends up just blowing up tomorrow um i can go back to the dealer i can call the authority they don't want a bad yelp review they don't want an unhappy customer they want to keep me happy right so that i spread the word hey ford's great i love these guys they are wonderful so that reputational effect is um is uh embedded into institutions, right? So going to a Ford dealer is different than going to the weird used car lot that I bought my daughter's car at, right? Different level of institutions. So for the research we've done, we've shown that um, the the uh, trust in institutions flows through individuals. In other words, it's not that I trust the federal government so much or Sacramento, where I live, California, um, it's that I trust that other people trust this. So this is really, again, tapping into our social nature that if lots of other humans are doing this thing, it's probably okay. In fact, that's the way science works, right? Science is a consensus view, right? So if if you know 98% of the science shows this thing, shows that um eating a high-fat diet will shorten your life and give you a heart attack, it's probably true. There's maybe one or two, you know, oddball studies that don't support that for whatever reason, but generally, you know. I think we can say that's a that's as true a fact as as we can fe- find in medicine for example um so i think we do the same thing so institutions are just a way to kind of reduce that so political parties do that for example right so whoever you vote for right you, if i don't have to do all the research on all the people running for president and all the different parties and green and libertarian or whatever i say look i'm a democrat or republican or a libertarian i'm just going to vote my party think how much time and energy that saves you Again, it may not be perfect, but you know evolution doesn't give us perfect; they give us good enough.
0: So, going back to uh, some of the work that you have been doing before, taking that same idea, if we extend it into markets, you've you've looked at before how if we have these this high trust in information, and you're saying there's a flow of information, my trust in institutions comes from my trust in people, and that leads to an economically thriving market or maybe a high performance team. What is that relationship between Trusting someone and then seeing an economic benefit.
1: Really, really good question. Um, So the the economic impact of trust comes from something called generalized trust. So if I grab two people and uh, say, you know, can you trust each other? That's what kind of drives growth. So a lot of smaller countries like Singapore, you have interpersonal trust. So I know a family, a clan, uh, an ethnic group. And that doesn't generalize out. So this is old Adam Smith extent of the market kind of stuff, right? So if the market's small, I can only Mm -hmm. trust people in my in-group, then I really can't grow very effectively. So in the U.S., trust has been falling since the late 60s. um, But it's still moderate. It's still in the sort of, you know, 33%, kind of 36%, something like that. That's low. Yes, low. And, you know, in the 60s, it was much more like two-thirds. Wow. Um, But we balance that with stronger institutions, right? So we have so many ways informal and formal ways to resolve um, breaches of trust that we can do that. So that's the work we showed in the early 2000s. um, So I spent a lot of time in Denmark. So Denmark, one of the highest trust countries in the world, by the way, trust and happiness at the country level run together. um, And there's some evidence at the individual level as well. If you trust more people, you're actually happier. We can talk about why that's the case as well. But um, you think about Denmark, there's like four last names, right? They're all ethically related, all those things build that social connection. So we think of trust as really the value that you gain from um, having social connections that you don't need to investigate. So in, uh, in Denmark, because of the big welfare state, occasionally people basically cheat the system. So they have basically unlimited unemployment. So they don't limit if you get laid off or whatever. Um, they don't limit how long you can stay in unemployment, but there's, you know, these are kind of Germanic people, hardworking people. And so most people, you know, stay on for a while, look for a new job. They want you to find a job you really love. Occasionally, there are people who, who's, you know, take advantage of the system and they're really shunned. They're like, oh, what, you've been on unemployment for five years? Oh, ooh, right? So that's that, as you said, that, that implicit social contract. So we have the same thing here, right? So, um, Opening doors for someone who's walking by, uh, you know, not bumping into people at the grocery store, you know, just sort of standard stuff. So I'm a little skeptical of the survey numbers on trust in the U.S. because behaviorally, most of the time you're in New York, aren't you?
0: Uh, well, I was the last few months. Yeah. yeah.
1: OK. So, yeah, we walk down the street in New York City. Right. I mean, granted, there's some you know weirdness because of the post covid, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, pretty much you're not getting stabbed. Some people do. <laughs> you know the, the, the amount of violence in the world has declined mm-hmm. for the last 500 years and it's still declining right on you know multiple measures by this is work by Steven Pinker and others. Right. We find about 95 percent of the people have an intact oxytocin system that is a system that's basically underlies the golden rule. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you, that's the way oxytocin works right Someone has to start that process. but once it starts, then I have this I want to reciprocate even if no one's looking, even if nobody really cares, because that's what our brains have trained us to do so for our children, to keep us connected to other humans who we need and enjoy, actually. I mean, some humans we actually enjoy being around. So the 5% who don't have this intact system, about half those are psychopaths. So they actually lack the ability, they lack the empathy to reconnect to others. And the other half to a percent are people having really bad days. They are just stressed out beyond belief. Again, we've all been there and they just don't, you know, they're just being inhibited by that. So you get a 95% chance with a random dude you meet on the street that it's going to be a fine interaction.
0: Running these studies across the world also gave Dr. Zach an indication of how diverse life experiences and different cultural environments might impact these levels of trust as well.
1: We've done the studies in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea. We've done it just about everywhere you can do these studies in many different ways. So Uh, in particular working with criminal psychopaths and patients who have abuse histories and looking how robust these systems are uh, in the brain or these circuits are in the brain. We are constantly scanning our environment to identify if people are going to be fear dealers, if they're safe or not. Mm -hmm. So we published a study just recently in the last uh, six months showing that um, it's a laboratory study, but the stakes are up to a thousand dollars. This is funded by the US taxpayers in which people could chat with each other Blah, blah, blah. They knew they were going to do this kind of uh, sequential decision making in which they could share this $1,000. And um, at, and they talked about it. They knew exactly what they were going to do. And then they go privately and they make their decisions. Um, and what we found is that on self report, people can't tell you, I think Lindsay's going to share yeah. or she's going to steal all the money. Um, but signals in the brain identify this with very high accuracy. So we know. So if I'm walking down the street in New York City, and I see someone, uh, you know, with a hoodie on, uh, talking to themselves, twisting their hair, and they're dirty, you know, my experience is that person's probably not a safe person to be around. Right? I should be much more on edge.
0: So what Dr. Zak is describing here is clearly the fundamental science of how our brains operate. But I wanted to recognize some of the risks to how these mechanisms work without intervention. As we know, some of these brain biases can actually lead to a lot of misguided racial and gender-based bias as well. Stay tuned for later in the episode when we get into how exposure to different experiences or people can change the wiring in our brain to increase levels of comfort and trust.
1: Knowing the mechanism on the other side of the equation that lets us get on airplanes, eat in restaurants, go to work every day with strangers, get get in a little box called an elevator with strangers, that's freaking weird, right? Again. Almost no animals will do that it's the, other than like animals that we've domesticated and just super calmed down. Um, it's just really unusual, right? Even, even you know, have my dog's lying here next to me and, um, you know, even two dogs in a little box, you know, they're going to be really curious about each other and they might growl and, you know, and, and sometimes we growl internally, right? We don't, we don't usually go out loud like, oh boy, I'm going to step back from that person. Um, by the mm-hmm. way for listeners if, if you really want to enjoy yourself and be a better social creature when you're i've decided some years ago in that little box called an elevator to just say hi to people
0: mm-hmm. and it's
1: really interesting because look you know you're there you can you, you know yeah. we're, we're aware so I, thought, I just thought i love doing experiments on myself like what happens if i start talking to people in elevators and about half the people you have a really nice 20 second conversation with and the other half are completely freaked out and that Second group of people also somehow makes me happy
0: and so that's is an interesting point around the um you know cross cultural or just you know when you're looking at the diversity of the world and seeing well, what are these experiments that I can do in my everyday life to mm-hmm. see about not only increasing happiness but increasing trust as well and so you know what are some of these ways other than you know injecting someone with a dose of oxytocin
1: great question, so part of that is being present so again it's one of the inhibitors of trust is um, stress and that could be you're, you're rushing or you so i want to be fully present i want to put my phone away i'm going to look at you lindsay hey how are you how are you doing and being kind of not faking it we're good at picking out the fakers because we have all the you know internal antennae that tell me that you're bsing me so how are you doing today Are you okay? What's going on? So that's just good human behavior that we do very, very naturally, right? It's a little harder in the 2D video conference world. It's much easier in person. So number one, spend time uh, building those relationships. Do your best to be fully present, right? Be interested in this person, right? I, I find some of the most interesting people I've ever met are janitors and the guy working in the mechanic shop at my university and they're doing really interesting stuff and I really want to talk to them and know about them so you know have a genuine interest in people and then finally you know trust is about um, connection about service so something I do um, I try to do on every conversation I have is end that conversation with the word service so Lindsay how can I be of service to you after we finish this podcast oh that's great Right. So that says, I want to continue this relationship. i want to be of service to you so that um, and oftentimes people are, first of all, they're really happy about it. But oftentimes they'll say, actually, could you recommend someone else for my podcast or I'd really like to know about this? You know, it's really building that sense of connection. So as you know, I have a startup. So our first startup in the startup world, as I'm sure, you know, there's a strong ethos of helping everyone else in the startup world right? It's freaking hard, 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 and stressful. So really being of service to other people. And then finally, I'm semi-famous for hugging people (laughs) because we showed that touch releases oxytocin. So
0: I think Dr. Love was your nickname.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Fast company called me Dr. Love. Um, So again, that was a self-experiment. I just like, what would happen if I just hugged people instead of shaking hands? And we had done this lab experiment showing it causes oxytocin release. So I will pre-announce some people are not comfortable, and we're in the you know post-COVID world. Um, so I was at the TED conference a couple of months ago uh, in Vancouver, and people were so happy to be together. And I must have hugged, I think there were uh, around 1300 people there. I must have hugged about at least half those people. So um, yeah, people were super happy to get hugs and hang out, and and a couple of people were like, I'm not really comfortable yet. I'm like, Oh, that's cool, no problem. Um, uh, fist bump or whatever that is. So um, but you know, if you think about hacking the system, if you will, um you know who do we hug? Well, people we trust, people that we care about, people that we know. And so I'm just accelerating that process. And what happens often is that people open up, and it's um, essential to do that, particularly for people who don't easily release oxytocin. So these are people who are more introverted, people who are maybe a bit socially awkward. Young male, so testosterone is another oxytocin inhibitor. So I've been in meetings where I hug people, and you see a guy who's you know working maybe his first job, 23, 24. No one's touched this guy in a long time, and you give people a hug in a room, and you're like, they just relax. So like, oh man, that's great. So we all need that. And I'm old enough that I can hug, you know, even young people like you, and it's not weird or creepy. So again, occasionally people go, no, I'd rather not. Well, that's fine, no problem.
0: More of Figuring It Out with Dr. Paul Zak after this. We'll talk about what might influence someone's natural levels of oxytocin, impacting their trust and risk tolerance.
1: A lot of our personality traits are genetic and they are what they are. And so um, I mentioned my wife tends to be very risk averse. She's a medical doctor. Uh, her whole life's about reducing harm and less about taking risks. She wants to avoid risk. And that's mostly her personality. I like to lean into risk, that's my personality. I like things that might kill me. I kind of enjoy it for some crazy reason, but also because I've done really weird research that had I known how, like the stuff, had I known how crazy that idea was, how hard it was to do, I never would have done it. But I was just naive. I'm like, oh, how hard can this be? I just give it a shot. So, again, that's my personality. So there's no good or bad there. You know, I think we have to, we as observers of other humans should be very tolerant of those variations. So, return to work is a great example of that. So we see some people are still kind of anxious about being around others. I think that's okay. We I think we have to say, we'd like you to get back to the office a couple of days a week, three days a week. If you can, we understand you work more effectively when you don't have that commute perhaps. But we also think it's important that we have this time to see each other in person, to have those random collisions where interesting conversations happen. So that's the first. So genes, very hard to change. Um, the second is environment, right? If you grow up in a very stressful environment and a stable environment, you tend to be much more acutely aware of risks in your environment, of potential threats, and so yeah, people uh, often will be just risk averse, like, ah oh, man, I just I've been burned too much. Um, so we see this in again in, in patients that we've studied who have um, like abuse histories, that have very unstable. Uh, so again, you can kind of train yourself out of that. Therapy sometimes, drugs sometimes, and you know medicines um, can help with that. But um, so. You kind of are what you are as an adult. We're going to evolve a little bit, but you know, you're you're evolving within these bounds. So second is what can you do? Train yourself to kind of reach out more to see other opinions. And I think part of that is having an environment, first of all, that people are interested in doing this is fabulously wonderful and we should celebrate that but also having an environment where this can be done safely and often that's an environment with other humans Um, go to a book club travel is a really wonderful way to get a different perspective on the world and both to have um, uh, appreciation for what we have in this country but also appreciation for other cultures other countries and how they work but even things like sports you know those those are great growth experiences i think one reason that we encourage children to engage in so many sports. It's not only for the health benefits, it's about social bonding. It's about pushing your limits, about being able to take risk and, um, you know, safely absorb that risk. The brain is a big cost benefit calculator. So, but it's an imperfect one, right? Just like we have all these optical illusions, like the moon on the horizon looks really big, but two hours later in the sky, it looks small. That's just your brain trying to tell you that this is a big object and maybe you should be careful. So if I change one or more of those neurochemicals in your brain or change electrical activity in your brain or you're tired or hungry that cost benefit calculation changes radically right so um this is like shopping when you're hungry and you tend to buy more sugars and, and more fats because that's what your body wants so again you can suppress that with your big prefrontal cortex but that's adaptive biologically right that's that's that variation you know it's about 200 neurochemicals that are active in your brain those are changing at millisecond frequency. And so the rule for humans is not consistency, but variation, right? We're all going to be weirdos at some point in time. Um, and, you know, that's just the way our brains are adapting to our environments. So just think of your brain as this cost-benefit calculator and then sit back and ask, how might I overweight the benefits relative to the costs? So if I'm going to do this thing that's new and different. I shouldn't be tired or hungry, right? First of all, that just reduces my my ability to absorb new information. I should do it in in an environment that I feel comfortable in with people I feel relatively comfortable
0: in. Up next, what Dr. Zach's newest work in immersion science can teach us about creating more valuable experiences for our brain, and how that can help us make decisions that lead to more fulfilling lives. I'd love to dig into your your newest work, actually, because it's quite related to this. Uh, Your newest book is Immersion, the Science of Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness. I think it's interesting because as you get exposed to these new experiences, your cost-benefit analysis is going to change and you're going to take a little bit more risk, maybe. So can you talk to me about what some of this new work is, both for your new startup and this research?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, I think ultimately all the work I've done has been to create knowledge and technologies to increase human happiness, right? That's ultimately the goal. Um, And so uh, the question that this work, which took about 15 years to do from this book, is why do 80% of Hollywood movies for the past 30 years lose money? How is it possible, right? Why do we have crappy TV shows and bad advertisements and, oh my gosh, corporate training and, and education that puts people to sleep, how do we not know? And I think the, the short answer is because we're asking people if they like it. And that's the wrong question. What you really want to know is, is this so valuable to your brain that your brain will invest in metabolic resources to, um, give you the pleasure and the ability to process this experience that you're having. Um, and so, I've measured about immersion, this neurologic state in which you're attentive, but you're emotionally connected to the experience. It's a very weird neurologic state that our research uncovered, research in my lab, um, and then my software company is now made available for anybody to measure uh, using our platform. Um, when we see immersive experiences, they are um, emotionally compelling. They focus your attention on that experience. They're memorable. They create a desire to repeat it. Uh, they tend to be unexpected. Uh, they're just these amazing experiences. And so, how do we do that? So, so basically, the book is reverse engineering the, the neuroscience. So, an ad. So, you know, we've seen data from I've seen data from thousands and thousands of ads. And so, I'm just deriving from that. How do I make an advertisement that is so compelling to go? Holy crap! This is awesome. Doesn't mean you're going to buy the product because maybe you don't need it. Maybe. You I don't know, it's Huggies diapers, maybe you don't have infants at home, but I can still give you that enjoyment of seeing that advertisement, right? So how do I make that? And if you need Huggies, then it's, then it's a win-win, right? You go, oh, holy crap, Huggies are the best diapers and I need diapers. Okay, I'm going to buy some Huggies. And so, um, But we can apply that to all these different areas. Um, I'm really passionate about um, emotional wellness. So to be satisfied in your life, you need to be emotionally healthy. And ultimately these peak immersive experiences are what give us these spikes in happiness and that trains your brain to be, um, to, to be more satisfied. And ultimately almost all those experiences are social experiences. So they we're training ourselves by having peak immersive experiences to be better connectors, to be more embedded in our communities. And that leads to longer lives, healthier lives, and stronger social connections. And that's the recipe for uh, a long and fulfilled life.
0: That's beautiful. And is it that when we're more present, is that kind of the recipe for happiness as well? It's, you know, sometimes when Mm -hmm. we make decisions, we're not thinking about um, how do I feel right now? We're thinking, where does this get me? But what you're arguing here is it's not about, am I going to buy this product? And that's Mm -hmm. going to help me in this way. It's saying, do I enjoy this experience right now?
1: Yeah, i think i think you've got half of it i think being present is the kind of necessary condition to be immersed but the experience itself has to be actually valuable to your brain so the brains are really stingy organ because it takes so much energy to run so when we find these immersive experiences we really want to fully kind of consume them and that's why it creates in the brain a, de- a desire to repeat them so what do we call that in business that's customer loyalty right so um uh, I'll give you a concrete example in just a second. So um, you're right. We have to be present for them. We have to be open to them. But once we have them, the argument in the book is we should lean into these things. Like they they are so amazing that we should try to get more of them. And again, almost always these are experiences with some social content, right? Ads have social content, movies have social content, training, education. There's a leader. So, you know, you can do this online, but still there's, there's, you know, it's talking about people stuff, So it has that oxytocin-driven sense of connection. So um, can I use one bad word?
0: Sure, of course. Yeah,
1: yeah. So one of the immersion uh, software subscribers um, called immersion the give-a-shit measure. (laughs) So it's kind of like (laughs) your brain doesn't really want you to spend too much energy unless this is going to be valuable enough to you. And when it is valuable, it's like tension in your brain. You go, oh, man, that was amazing. I want to do that again. I remember it. I want to share it. Um, so I'll give you a quick example. So um, a bunch of years ago, I was going to a conference in Canberra, Australia. Never been to Australia. It takes forever to get there from wherever you are. And um, so I flew into Sydney, I was gonna spend a couple of days in Sydney and then drive to Canberra. And my this is this is how old it was, have a travel agent. This is the olden days. And so she said, look, you know, for an extra 20 bucks a night, you can just stay at the four seasons. Like everything's expensive in Australia, a giant island. I'm like, all right, put me in the four seasons. So I check in there, get a rent-a-car, drive around, go to Canberra. I actually left Canberra early from this conference. Anyway, I drive back to Sydney, drop off my rent-a-car at the airport, get a taxi, because I'm spending one more night in Sydney. I get out the Four Seasons, and the, the doorman there opens the taxi door, and he says, welcome back, Dr. Zach. Your room's ready for you. Oh, holy crap. Yeah, I was there four or five days ago, but this guy was organized enough. He knew I had stayed there previously. He knew I was probably in a weird time zone still, uh, jet lag. Um, and this was like, I don't know, early afternoon. They were ready for me. They used my name, right? And so, how many years ago was that, 12, 13 years ago? I still remember it. And let me tell you, if I can afford to stay at the Four Seasons, I will stay at the Four Seasons. Mm. It is the best. I mean, you just can't beat it. So, that's a level of customization to me and care to detail that says, oh, this was an amazing experience. And gosh darn it, I really want to do that again. If I can afford the for or someone's paying for me and says, where do you want to stay? Put me at the four seasons.
0: Yeah. How do you know if someone's going to prioritize that though? If we go back to this question of cost benefit analysis, you know, how do you think mm-hmm. about knowing, and you know, you're doing a lot of this work in a business context now. How do you bring that into targeting and saying, you know, I'm trying to create this, this amazing, immersive experience Mm-hmm. What if you know they don't care about having the best experience now if it means they might not be able to have more later?
1: Yeah, I think the key is measurement, right? And you're right, there's lots of individual variation there. But I think once we developed a technology that doesn't involve taking blood from people and doesn't involve putting a, you know, you in a giant MRI scanner, a way to measure at scale in real time the value your brain guess or experiences, then we have a real tool to ask about how we curate our lives for greater happiness. So concrete example, we have a, a we have a emergent subscriber that use our platform to build a system, a piece of software uh, to monitor the emotional wellness of people in retirement homes. So it turns out that elderly people have a higher risk of depression than most of the rest of the population. Once you get, there's also a wow. high risk when people are teenagers. Um, and so, but they don't tend to report it because they're nice old people and who wants to hear an old person or anybody complain for that matter. So there's kind of underreported um, uh, depressive symptoms. And so what we found using our platform was indeed, we can actually identify when people had low mood, low energy, were not thriving with 99% 99% accuracy by measuring their continuously measuring their neurophysiology with a wearable like with an apple watch pulling you know applying data to an apple watch basically uh, to measure immersion um, and so that means your elderly mother father grandmother grandmother are going to live longer right they're going to live happier they're going to be more engaging when you come visit them and it gives you kind of an early uh, warning tool so to me that's just a perfect application of the, you know, almost 30 years of scientific research I've done, which is to make a tool that anyone can use to make the world better from a social perspective, right? I can solve global warming or, I don't know, uh, you know, pollution. It's not my thing. But what I can do is help people create better social experiences by measuring the experience you're having. And then you as an individual will know, actually, even though rock climbing kind of scares me, I really like doing it. I like these people I'm going with. You may not know that, right? So I think the, the short answer, Lindsay, try new things and then try to assess whether those, you know, give you enough value that you want to keep doing them. So I think it is going into new places, going into new experiences. Again, if you feel comfortable doing that within the realm that you feel comfortable and just giving it a shot, because you just never know. Yeah. You know, ultimately having a tool for businesses to give us what we want, which is awesome. Not bad. Like you don't want, you know, you don't want a romantic partner who's just bland. You don't want to see a movie that's dull. You don't want to sit in a corporate training that puts you to sleep. You want awesome. How do we, how come we don't get awesome all the time? And my biased view is that because we're we're asking people if they like something, which is the wrong question. What I want to know is if this experience is so powerful that it shook up your brain and just turned you on, you're like, man, this is the awesomest thing ever. Right? When you get that. It is amazing. So give me more of that stuff. Um, and almost always that stuff has social content. And that means if I can capture this neurologic state I've called immersion, then I have a way to assess objectively how much my brain values this. Do I like the opera? I don't know. Maybe I should go to the opera and give it a shot. Mm. Not once, maybe twice or three times. And then ah, maybe an opera guy. I don't know. Maybe I am. I But, you know, unless you try, you won't know. So I think that's where we're going is... I think that the next um, uh, dimension of the quantified self movement is finding out what your brain loves. Mm. Uh, I can't think of anything more important. And you do give me more of that and I'll be living a happier life. So that's that's the overall goal.
0: What I especially love about this is, and it's a bit counter to when you think about positive psychology, which is saying find the goodness in everything. A lot of this is saying well, let's increase your experiences, right? Let's have a diversity of experiences because all of that is data. I've had other experts on this show and we talk a lot about, especially within the context of uh, anxiety, uh, for example, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's Mm -hmm. your body telling you something. And so you're saying in this way, let me go to the opera and see if I love opera. Maybe I don't, but having that variation and experience is giving you the right information to then move you in the direction towards what you do love.
1: Absolutely. And so you've got to push and try a little something new. So even old dogs can learn new tricks. So no matter how old you are, yeah, try something new every once in a while. And again, if you can find a group that will do that with you, even better, right? Mm. So people that are uh, there. So, but again, don't, don't beat yourself up either. If that's not your gig, if you're just happy cruising and you want to, I don't know, watch TV and knit, hey, good for you. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no judgment here, but I think you can improve the quality of your life and the satisfaction. When you have those new experiences, it gives you a chance to have new things to interact or to share with and interact with the people around you. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you so much for joining me on this conversation. I feel like I've learned so much. I've had so much fun. Um, I've Yeah, thank you again. I really appreciate this it.
1: This was a ball. Thank you for having me on. I would do this every week if you would let me.
0: I mean, I would be very happy to. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> well, I want to be of service to you. So anytime.
0: That was my new favorite person, Dr. Paul Zak. His newest book is called Immersion, The Science of Extraordinary and Source of Happiness. If you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend or two or let us know on social media. And in the spirit of Dr. Zak, Reach out to us if there's anything our show can help you with. We're back next week for a conversation on travel. As people re-enter the world of travel and reconsider where and how they want to live, many are faced with big decisions around where they should go and what they should do with their time. I'm talking with the best-selling author of Geography of Bliss, Eric Weiner, about what writing on travel and philosophy taught him about happiness. Until then, I decided to spend the last weeks of my summer walking the Camino de Santiago from Portugal to Spain. Wish me luck, and we'll be back soon.